Welcome to the Writing Western Podcast. I'm your host, Brennan Rensing. Today we speak with journalist Rebecca Robinson and photographer Stephen Strom about their books, Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land, and Bears Ears, Views from a Sacred Land. Thanks for listening. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Each episode features a conversation with an author or scholar of new works that explore the North American West. We hope that our discussions will spark your curiosity to learn more and think differently about the North American West as a region and its peoples, environments, histories, literature, and so forth. You can follow Writing Westward on Facebook at Writing Westward Podcast or on Twitter at Writing West. You can listen on our website, writingwestward.org, or subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. We're listed on most major distributors. To learn more about the Red Center, our programming, live streamed lectures, funding opportunities for research and events, or anything else, find us at redcenter.byu.edu. That's R-E-D-D-Center.byu.edu. You can get more regular updates about the Red Center on Facebook and Twitter as well. Anyone living in the American West over the past few years will no doubt have at least heard of Bears Ears. This is an area in southeastern Utah that has stirred considerable controversy recently, as various parties have fought and debated over how its public lands should be regulated and managed. The region is densely packed with indigenous ruins, rock art, and burials, as well as sites of current sacred significance for various tribal communities, and many have fought for it to be protected as a national monument. Others in the region opposed that designation for various reasons. Others yet were split, seeing both pros and cons to the various viewpoints. In December of 2016, then-President Barack Obama declared the Bears Ears National Monument. But a year later, President Donald Trump reduced its size by approximately 85%. Many cried foul, noting the influence of mining industry lobbyists on the administration's decision, while others praised it. Throughout all of the public and private debates before and after these 2016 and 2017 events, the media failed to capture the diversity of local opinion and the complexity of the various parties' views. Very few took the time to listen and instead drove dialogue where opposing sides largely talked past one another. In this, Rebecca Robinson and Stephen Strom have done us a great service by publishing their two volumes. For the project, Robinson and Strom became acquainted with and interviewed nearly all of the major public figures in the Bears Ears debates, as well as many largely unknown to the general public. They listened with empathy and allowed their subjects to express their views. For Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land, published by the University of Arizona Press in 2018, Robinson weaves the interviews together with insightful commentary, background information, context, and challenging questions. The text is complemented by Strom's photography throughout of the interviewed subjects and, importantly, the land. George F. Tompkins Publishing, in collaboration with the University of Arizona Press, also published a large-format companion volume of Strom's photography entitled Bears Ears, Views from a Sacred Land. Both are supported by an active website and blog, bearsearscountry.com. Anyone wanting to cut through the oft-polemical and unbalanced rhetoric of opposing sides in the Bears Ears issues should read this book. Anyone embroiled in the issue themselves should read it as well, if for no other reason than to pause and take a moment to try to understand why opposing sides believe what they do, regardless of whether we change our own views in the end. There is value in understanding people on their own terms. There is value in listening. The prospect of meaningful progress, collaboration, or resolution on Bears Ears or any of the other many contentious issues in the American West are slim if we don't learn how to pause, listen, and practice empathy. Rebecca Robinson and Stephen Strom, thanks for joining us today on the podcast. Thanks for having us, Brendan. Yeah, thanks for having us. I look forward to the conversation. So this is a little bit of a new experiment for the podcast, having three of us, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to make it work. The two books we're going to be talking about today that you guys did together, Voices from Bears Ears, Seeking Common Ground on Sacred Land, and then the companion photography volume, Bears Ears, Views from a Sacred Land. And we'll probably spend most of our time with the Voices one specifically, but it also includes a lot of the photographs that are featured in that um, second volume as well. 
I spent quite a bit of time with this book, and I wasn't sure what to expect. And I was so pleased and so excited with uh, the work that you guys did here. And I'm really excited to feature it on the podcast because I think it is a volume that a lot of people need to pick up and spend some time with. So it gets my ringing endorsement. At least uh, if you haven't received positive praise from anyone else, you at least have it from me. <laughs> it's much appreciated. <laughs> Part of the reason I was I recommend it to people so highly is that we have this very contentious issue that's been contentious for a number of years um, and boiled over in, I think, some unexpected ways that we'll get to in, in the middle of your guys' project. And there's so many different voices and perspectives on it, and you guys capture so many of them in a very empathetic way where you let people speak their minds. And I think you did a really fair job of that. Um, so can you tell us what brought you to this project, how this started? Sure, I'll start. And then, Steve, you can chime in because this is inherently a collaborative endeavor. Um, so Steve and I long wanted to work together. I've been a journalist for over a decade now, and Steve obviously has been photographing landscapes in the Southwest for um, many years. And so we'd always wanted to find the right project um, on which to work together. And this project was really, it was born out of a desire to honor Steve's late wife and my um, grandmother, Karen Strom. Uh, she so loved these landscapes and was so deeply connected to them and to uh, native culture as well. And in the wake of her passing in uh, spring of 2014, Steve and I found ourselves trying to think of a way to honor her memory. And initially, we were looking at um, efforts to preserve um, the Greater Canyonlands region as a national monument. It was a proposal put together by a coalition of environmental organizations. And the goal there was to expand the existing boundaries of Canyonlands National Park into a greater area um, that was proposed for protection way back in the early 60s when Canyonlands National Park was created. Um, and so initially this was really so, supposed to be sort of a love letter to the landscape, maybe a more traditional coffee table book, um, extolling the beauty of, of this uh, magical landscape. But in our first interviews with people from conservation organizations, they said, actually, there's a much more interesting story brewing further south of here, and we're really shifting our efforts toward this new initiative to protect area in southeastern Utah um, in what's known as the Bears Ears region, or what became to uh, what came to be known as the Bears Ears region, as the debate over Bears Ears National Monument heated up, and so we said, "Well, wow, that sounds like something worth investigating." Is this a type of topic you've done previously in your reporting? No, uh, interestingly enough, I I've been sort of a generalist. Um, and I have done reporting on everything from healthcare to the criminal justice system in California to um, arts and culture in Oregon. I worked um, as a radio producer at an NPR affiliate in Portland, Oregon um, for a while back in the day. And so I've really covered a number of different topics, but environmental issues, environmental justice issues, uh, was a topic completely new to me. I was very familiar with these landscapes, having traveled to and hiked in them with uh, my grandparents and immediate family for over 20 years, but I'd never done any reporting um, that was environmentally focused and nothing about uh, the American Southwest. Hmm. And Stephen, you'd also hiked and photographed the region for a long time. Is that kind of your main connection there? It is, but I'd like to add one thing, uh, which is that although I've been photographing there since the late 1970s, um, the attachment to, to the land and some of the uh, cultural issues that inform the Bearsers debate started when my wife and I 
spent a couple of summers teaching on the Navajo reservation, we felt that photographing that landscape was in some sense, you know, taking, taking something from the land without giving back. And Hmm. we felt uh, that it would be of significant interest to, uh, to work with native peoples. Uh, And so we spent a couple of summers teaching at at what was then Navajo community college. And now it's called the college. And uh, that led to uh, not only deeper immersion in the landscape, but also a growing number of connections with folks in the native community. One of the earlier consequences of that set of summers spent on the Navajo reservation was a connection through multiple links to uh, the poet, essayist, and musician Joy Harcho. We collaborated on a book called Secrets from the Center of the World, which has some powerful poetry from Joy and some complimentary images uh, of the region that um, I put together. So, Oh, that's wonderful. And she's now the Poet Laureate, right? It's true. Of the United States. That's wow. true. I, I, I like to say that that uh, I have superb choice in women, but that <laughs> sounds uh, not only uh, condescending, uh, but uh, in any event, I uh, I have I've been blessed to to have a, a strong wife who always extended the limits of my imagination and collaborations with any number of women, both in my professional work as, a, uh, as an astronomer and as a photographer who has focused on environmental issues. Oh, that's great. I also I appreciate what you, you noted, that you felt photographing the region, you, you were taking something away. And, I mean, as researchers with Native peoples, that there has been a long tradition and concerns about going into Native communities, conducting interviews, that almost as kind of an extractive industry where you're extracting information out of a community and not necessarily giving back or serving that community. I love that you have that sensitivity of wanting to serve and give back to be it the communities or the landscape itself, which I, I think the two, these two volumes both do in a variety of ways. Well, Rebecca, you kind of get to this a little bit in the introduction where you talk about conducting these interviews down in the Bears area, and you talk about openness, and you talk about listening, which suggests to me, again, a kind of a different approach, interviewing approach than just going and extracting information out to tell a story. How, how did you build this this desire or sense of really wanting to listen and, and understand what people were trying to say? Well, I think some of that just comes from my journalism background and the desire to present both sides of an issue with um, empathy and context and really centering the voices of the people whose lived experiences informed the stories and news coverage I created for a variety of different publications um, and radio as well. And this also seemed, I mean, at the time, we started this project in early 2015. At the time, there wasn't a tremendous amount of news coverage on this issue, but what I had seen struck me as rather polarizing in the sense that, you know, there was one side, um, primarily Anglo, that was opposed to the monument, and then there was another side of primarily Native um, who supported it, and there wasn't a lot of nuance there, and I, I knew there had to be more to it than just these deeply polarized views. And I um, also know that uh, there's the coverage of rural areas and people uh, who live in them is uh, can be kind of hard to come by and can be oversimplified. Um, and so I really wanted to, as I've done in the rest of my reporting, try to understand uh, the greater and more nuanced context for this story and to really kind of center those voices and and let them drive the story. Yeah, I feel like in this, you know, this Bears Years issue, so many of the players have been characterized, you know, as, as caricatures, as um, very monolithic um, voices. And part of what you 
unveil is a real diversity of opinions and approaches and different reasons for why people care about the region and how they just how they view it in so many different ways. So I think that's really powerful. I have to say in full confession that there was uh, there were a number of long discussions uh, regarding the structure of the book and coming from an academic background, I had argued for a far more linear approach. And uh, it was Rebecca who insisted that the best way to tell the stories story was through the voices of of the individuals. And uh, I was very fortunate that that Rebecca uh, has a voice at least as strong as as her grandmother's. And she was able to persuade me, which I think <laughs> is much to to uh, the benefit of the uh, of the book and to its its readers. And I have to say that in as we uh, went along, I started to open my mind to what Rebecca referred to as the nuances of the issue. I had been concerned all along with the sort of top level issue of the health of rural counties adjacent to to public lands, and that those questions were asked throughout the uh, the process. But what I didn't realize, and it became so vivid as we as we went through the process, was the incredible attachment that that both native and Anglo folks have to that land, and and I think if Rebecca were speaking, she would say to most folks with whom we talked, the land is who we are. And that's something we heard from people on both sides of this debate. You know, the different spiritual traditions often informed the debate in ways we did not anticipate, but um, this this sense of being, of having one's very identity shaped and um, informed by the landscape, and also the ancestral connection as well. And you know, for Native peoples in the region, there is very tangible evidence of uh, their ancestors in the canyons of the region where you can find um, ruins and pottery shards and um, just just different tangible reminders of people who came many hundreds of years ago to settle this landscape. Um, And uh, Native people also believe that they've been on that landscape since time immemorial and the Anglo yeah, the Anglo Mormon population um, arrived significantly later in the, um, in the mid to late 1800s, but there they also feel that strong cultural and spiritual attachment to the land because they believe that their God, their heavenly father spoke directly to the prophet um, in the Mormon church who instructed them to go settle this land and establish the first mission in Southeast Utah. So they really believe that their journey is a spiritual one as well. It was a pilgrimage to get there and they have deep uh, reverence for their connection to the land um, and also their tradition of what they see of stewardship of the land, the fact that they were able to create a life and a living in this very harsh, punishing landscape as a source of of great pride. And sometimes the interpretation of stewardship is a bit contentious because sometimes that is tied to employment in extractive industries, which have Mm -hmm in recent decades been sort of the bread and butter of um, the region. And for some, for some other folks who are not part of um, the Anglo-Mormon population in the area um, that doesn't necessarily correlate with the sort of land stewardship um, they perceive to be respectful of the environment. There's one um, other thing I wanted to add in terms of our approach to this book. Um, I 
When I saw coverage of this issue um, in the national media, and again, at that time when we started the project early to mid-2015, there hadn't been a lot of a lot of coverage on it, is that some national publications, uh, by virtue of the fact that they're based on the East Coast and don't have a presence um, out West, or at least not a great presence in the in the Southwest, engaged in, you know, what I call parachute journalism, where, um, you know, people would come in for a weekend, interview a few of the loudest voices, and then return to uh, their offices in New York or D.C. And again, that's uh, sort of by necessity, not having that presence on the ground. But what we really tried to do was spend as much time on the ground as possible. You know, we first went uh, down to San Juan County, home to Bears Ears, um, and really kind of the epicenter of this debate um, for a week or so in um, mid 2015. And then in fall 27, uh, 2015, excuse me, we spent a month there um, and we kept going back and going back and going back. And I think um, the fact that we did spend a lot of time on the ground and, you know, we kept uh, asking people for interviews and taking time to go out in the landscape with them. I think that really showed people that we were committed to telling this story in uh, an in-depth and nuanced way. So I think that was uh, that was a big part of how we were able to build these relationships was really in the time. Do you think that opened things up more when they saw that you were yeah, not just parachuting in for a quick story? I do. I, I think that was was very significant. And I think. Hmm. The fact that we kept coming back and kept coming back demonstrated to people that not only were we very interested in the story, um, but we, you know, had that commitment to trying to understand the nuances of the story and also trying to appreciate the cultural context um, in which this debate was taking place, mm -hmm. because that's a really significant part of this is there's that deep cultural and spiritual connection to the land. There's also a really difficult and painful history that both of these populations have experienced, um, both, you know, in terms of persecution by the federal government, as well as, you know, some of the um, issues of racism that uh, yeah. between the two groups that have played out over the decades. And so that's a really important part of what these folks are bringing to this conflict over public lands is that uh, deep and sometimes painful history. As you guys come in as outside reporters, um, there is the other big voice in this debate is often these outside conservationist groups right. um, or, or people involved in recreation or environmental protection, which are all have really strong voices in these debates about how they view Bears Ears as a special and sacred place, you know, that needs to be protected for the benefit of people to use. Um, but they're often outside mm -hmm. groups. Mm -hmm. And I, I suspect that many of the people you interviewed could have initially viewed you in the same way as another outside uh, entity uh, coming in to muck around in their local affairs. Um, but again, you're being persistent and not just being interested in the story, but being interested in them mm -hmm. and their voices. It seems to have cut through that to where uh, you weren't viewed as an outside meddling force. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, initially, we very much were perceived that way. And, I, and uh... But as I look through the list of interviews, I mean, anyone who's clued into the Bears Ears debates at all, um, I mean, the names here, um, Jonah Yellowman, Mark Maryboy, Phil Lyman and Rob Bishop, um, Heidi Red, Regina Lopez-Whiteskunk. I mean, these are all names that I've seen crop, pop up in, you know, various things. Um, I was astounded at not just the number of people that some of the people that you got to come speak who I think maybe would have been very suspicious of uh, of you and that you might be misrepresenting them in one way or another. So it's an impressive roster. Well, thank you. And I, I want to jump in and say we, in some ways, we're the real beneficiary beneficiaries of um, blind luck in that we started this project before the issue became 
very well known uh, yes. and uh, and informed by occasionally sensationalistic media coverage. And so I think had we started this project a year later uh, in, say, mid-2016, after it had gotten national coverage in The Washington Post, The New York Times, um, and then state-based coverage as well, the Salt Lake Tribune, which I must add has done an exemplary job of covering yeah. this issue for a um, number of years now, um, it would have been a very different story because these people, because say Phil Lyman and Mark Mary Boy and other folks whose voices have been central to this debate, uh, especially uh, in terms of their appearance in national media, they would have been far less open, I believe, um, to a couple of Anglo folks, <laughs> you know, one of whom is from the big city. I lived in San Francisco at the time. Um, you know, coming in and just being two more uh, perhaps voyeuristic folks who wanted yeah. to present a sensationalized version of this story without any nuance. And so really, I think we just had the very good fortune of starting this project at a less contentious time. Actually, we were fairly fortunate in working our way through. We started uh, actually uh, with Mark Beloy. Uh, I knew Mark, who introduced us to uh, Mark Maryboy, uh, yeah. and that uh, facilitated that uh, conversation. Uh, we uh, made an appointment with Bill Boyle, who was editor of the San Juan Record, and our initial conversation was rather brief, but he said, by the way, do you guys know that there's a, a commissioner's meeting being held uh, today? Uh, and so uh, we looked at one another and said, we ought to go down there and see whether we can schedule appointments with the three commissioners, Rebecca Benali, Bruce Adams and uh, Phil Lyman. And so we stood outside the door of the commission meeting and spoke to each one of them. And they were uh, more than generous in, in uh, scheduling uh, time for uh, interviews. Uh, they were extremely eager to share their stories uh, and perspectives. I agree with Rebecca that that good luck and good fortune played uh, played a role, but it also is the generosity of the f of folks, both native and Anglo, in San Juan County, who you know made made this book possible and made our lives easier. And I, I'll add one more thing, and that is that. Uh, uh, after the book was completed, I've contacted Bill Boyle, uh, Alfred Lamakwahu, uh, Charles Wilson. Alfred Lamakwahu, uh, at the time was the co-chair of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition and um, mm -hmm. a member of um, the, the Hopi Tribal Council. So the reason I mention that is that, that, uh, these conversations have continued uh, well after the publication of the book. And while I can't say that these folks are are friends, they certainly are individuals for whom I've developed uh, an enormous amount of respect. And when I want to understand something either about uh, Bears Ears or uh, some of the other issues I'm trying to understand in uh, rural Utah, uh, I go to them and uh, they're equally as responsive today as they were when we when we first met. You divide this book into a number of sections in each uh, the chapters inside of each are each based off of a different interview with a different individual. Um, I'm curious if maybe we could go through a few of these and give us kind of a sampling of some of the different diversity of voices. The, the sections that the first one is connecting to sacred lands, voices of two cultures. Part two, shaping the future of public lands, different visions of, for San Juan County. Uh, the third, protecting ancestral lands, exercising tribal sovereignty. And then the last, a path forward, establishing trust, healing wounds. I mean, just the titles that they, they suggest kind of the broad range of approaches that you took here and put in throughout are a number of interludes, which, uh, which you wrote, Rebecca zooming out and giving some broader context, um, to cover some broader issues that maybe weren't covered in the interviews. Um, so why, why don't we pick a few of the, the key voices and individuals that represent some of the various perspectives on the issue? 
And maybe you can kind of give us a little insight into why you found those specific voices to be particularly powerful or insightful. Sure. I'll start with Phil Lyman because he's sort of been a lightning rod in this debate. So Phil has very deep ties to the region. His, oh, great, great, possibly great again. Um, uh, grandfather helped establish the community of Blanding, uh, which is the largest city, city, uh, 3,000 people in San Juan County. Uh, so he has that deep pioneer heritage. And he's a San Juan County commissioner, was a San Juan County commissioner. Now he's a Utah state representative. Um, but at the time, he was on the San Juan County Commission, uh, which is the most powerful body of elected officials in the county. Um, he has a very strong belief that local people, uh, you know, defined within very specific parameters um, and not the federal government should determine the management of public lands. So he's in favor of transferring the management of lands from the federal government agencies to uh, the states. And so that, uh, which is very much opposed by uh, conservation organizations, a, a number of, but not all, Native peoples in the region. Um, and he, what we discovered about him is he's sort of a Jekyll and Hyde character. Um, which is kind of important to understanding his role in the debate as well. In some ways, he's very much a firebrand um, and and very absolutist in his views about how federal land should be managed. But in other ways, he has a more I don't know. He he helped me out here, Steve. I think that uh, that Phil embodies within himself some of the contradictions in this story. He took the initiative to put together a public lands council in San Juan County in, re, uh, in response to Representative Rob Bishop's effort to put together a comprehensive public land uh, initiative. And the group that he put together uh, would, at least from my personal perspective, uh, be, I think it would be perceived as a, a, as a fairly broad uh, and uh, representative uh, set of stakeholders who debated what what happened to the public lands in, uh, in San Juan County and actually came to, to again, my perception, fairly reasonable uh, conclusions. He then subverted this effort by taking the now infamous ATV ride down Recap Canyon, Canyon yeah. which uh, in many ways opened uh, wounds uh, and made it very difficult to bring all stakeholders together, and in particular to keep the Native community at the table. And uh, it's very difficult to attribute the failure of that Public Lands Council and the PLI to that particular act, but it certainly exacerbated mm. difficulties and, at least from my perspective, uh, made it uh, much more difficult uh, to achieve compromise. So Mark Maryboy, another prominent voice in this, he, he was a part of that, um, coalition group with Lyman, correct? But, uh, but he ev eventually left. I mean, I was struck you quote Phil Lyman as saying, um, let's drop the whole facade of trying to work with our enemies and take a stand with our friends instead. I mean, I'm assuming it's in, in response to that kind of language and, and response that some of the native Peoples like Mark Marion Boy did leave the table, correct? Certainly, at least uh, uh, that would that would be a reasonable conclusion to to draw. Uh, and Mark had, as Rebecca mentioned, served in the past on the on the commission. Uh, he was the first uh, native uh, to serve on the San Juan County uh, Commission, and certainly has suffered a fair amount of verbal and nonverbal uh, abuse over the decades. And so I think uh, words like that from Phil and words that he has heard over his his career, such as go back to the reservation, uh, certainly made Mark and people who share his views particularly skeptical of the 
um, sincerity of, of individuals involved with the Public Lands Council. You know, and there was also the political clock running as well with the end of President Obama's term coming. And so there was uh, uh, there had to be a choice made between going for a legislative solution or going for a national monument declaration by President President Obama. And I think uh, one of the one of the many tragedies in this story is that there were time constraints and building trust and coming to consensus uh, takes more than the two plus years they had and put, putting together the recommendations yeah. to the uh, to the PLI from San Juan County. And uh, I, you know, I just wondered whether I wonder whether uh, in another universe had there been another two or three or four years uh, that uh, consensus might have actually been uh, achieved despite some of the rhetoric and uh, a legislative solution, which was the original goal of the of the tribes. Uh, whether that legislative solution might might not have uh, come to be. I was going to ask Rebecca, could you kind of give us some insight into Mark Maryboy? And um, you know, he had formed the Bears Ears in a tribal coalition, but it was kind of as a part of this shift away from the, the collaboration with Lyman and Rob Bishop and others, and moving, you know, looking for a legislative solution, and moving towards the view that it was really only the nation to nation. Uh, you know, diplomacy between sovereign native uh, peoples and the federal government was the way to move forward. Can you kind of maybe give us some insight into that shift that Mary Boy made? Sure. So taking a step back for a second, um, Mark is a very interesting um, character in this story because he considers himself a traditional Navajo, so very much aligned with um, traditional spiritual beliefs, but he also is an extremely seasoned and skilled politician and so very much speaks the language of uh, Western style politics. And so in many ways, he was uh, ideally suited to moving this whole process forward. Um, In 2010, he was one of the co-founders of the grassroots nonprofit Utah Denepikea, which is the original group that advocated for protection of the Bears Ears region through that legislative solution. And as time went on, and uh, especially after Phil Lyman uh, did his infamous ride through Recapture Canyon, damaging uh, Native cultural resources was largely seen as a slap in the face to uh, Native people as well as conservationists. Um, Mark and others determined that the best way forward um, would be to elevate the dialogue be, uh, above the sort of county public lands council to a nation-to-nation dialogue with other sovereign nations. And he recognized that a grassroots nonprofit, albeit a very um, powerful one that had put together this really sophisticated proposal for protection of lands in the Bears Ears region, could not achieve the goals of uh, protection um, on its own. And so he, uh, along with others, started traveling to um, other reservations in Pueblos in um, Arizona, New Mexico, and Colorado to convince tribes with very strong ancestral ties to the region that the best way to protect lands that were sacred to all of the tribes was to come together and form a coalition and formally petition the federal government to protect it as a national monument. Um, and this is a very significant decision by Mary Boy and others, because really it had never been done before that tribes with oft contentious histories could put aside those differences and past wounds and sometimes current legal disputes um, and come together in service of a shared goal. Um, It was very significant and remains significant. What about some of the unexpected voices? Um, We held an event here at the Red Center um, a couple of years ago, a, a roundtable on some of the different views of Bears Ears. And uh, it was all native voices, but we tried to bring in as many differing uh, perspectives as we could. And one thing that surprised people was that there were native peoples um, 
some very opposed to the monument, some just with more complicated relationships to it and, and questions. Um, and uh, people were surprised it's not quite the monolithic voice as they thought. Um, one person you spoke with in the book was Rebecca Benali, mm-hmm. who can maybe give, give us a little insight into her, because here's a, a different voice that might be unexpected for a lot of people. Sure, I'll start, and then Steve, if you want to jump in. Um, so Rebecca Benali, at the time we interviewed her, which I believe was fall 2015, she was on the San Juan County Commission with Phil Lyman and their fellow commissioner, Bruce Adams, who's been a vocal monument opponent as well. Um, and, she, and, and she's Navajo, we should. Yeah, we should, and, and she's Navajo. Yeah. And she, her perspective, um, she was... She was careful to qualify all of her remarks by saying she, too, considered herself a traditional Navajo with traditional Navajo spiritual beliefs. Um, but she's also um, a member of the LDS or Mormon church. And so she has that very interesting combined background wherein she has deep trust of the Anglo-Mormons and she has beliefs that um, are, are quite different than the native spiritual beliefs she um, also claims to uh, to hold sacred. Um, and she was opposed to the monument for a number of reasons, chief among them that historically the federal government has uh, not always had a harmonious relationship with Native peoples and has, in fact, uh, been at various times patronizing and even um, committed deep atrocities against Native peoples, against um, uh, particularly against the Navajo people. Um, And she said, why should we trust uh, the federal government at this time to uh, do the right thing and to do right by us and respect our cultural beliefs and protect land in a way that is sensitive to uh, the cultural beliefs of Native peoples and the ways in which they traditionally use the land. Um, and she also was concerned that uh, a monument designation would prevent uh, Native peoples from using the land in more traditional ways to gather wood, medicinal mm-hmm. herbs, um, and things of that nature, despite the fact that language in the uh, final monument proclamation very clearly stated that those traditional uses would be honored. Um, she really became, uh, like Phil Lyman, another lightning rod and very loud voice in this debate. And in fact, she um, was... She testified before the Utah legislature. She traveled to D.C. She um, was held up by uh, Utah Senator um, Orrin Hatch, U.S. Senator, I should say, Orrin Hatch, um, as an example of a Native person who was deeply opposed to the monument, um, just to include that oppositional uh, Native voice. Steve, I don't know if you want to jump in and add anything. I think she also uh, expressed to us a strong interest in focusing on issues of uh, economic importance to Navajos living in uh, in Utah. And one of the things that certainly occurred to me uh, was whether – Part of her views were shaped by her belief that her primary obligation was to Navajos in in southeast uh, Utah and uh, that by taking uh, either a neutral position or position supportive of Bears Ears, she would uh, undermine her relationship with the other uh, commissioners and um, evoke less support for some of the bread and butter issues that she felt were uh, essential to the health of the folks that she represented. I don't know whether you'd agree with that, Rebecca, but that certainly was one of the things that I picked up. I would. I would agree. She had a lot of other issues she was concerned about as well. Yeah. Um, What about from maybe some of the other side? Uh, We'd like to feature maybe one of the non-native voices that surprised you or that was more complicated than you anticipated it would be. 
You want to pick on Winston Hurts, Rebecca? <laughs> Why don't you? I don't mean pick on him. <laughs> Why don't you pick on Winston Hurst, and then I'll talk about Heidi Red. Well, Winston Hurst is a is a well known uh, archaeologist, uh, LDS, lives in uh, Blanding, and uh, spans uh, two cultural uh, worlds. Winston uh, recognized the effects of the two Blanding raids, 1986 and was it 2009. These were, for listeners who don't know, the government raids into arrested a number of people that had been digging illegally and looting native artifacts and so forth. And so Winston, you know, as a as an archaeologist, was extraordinarily sensitive to the the issue of uh, of looting. He confessed to uh, having been brought up uh, as a boy, uh, not thinking about the importance of uh, of these relics and not thinking about the importance of their being left where they are so that uh, a proper cultural history could be assembled. Uh, so he understood the the almost natural desire to go out into the landscape and collect these artifacts as, as if they were simply that artifacts as opposed to so uh, to things that were uh, of deep meaning to still extant uh, cultures. So he understood that, but uh, also was particularly disturbed by the insensitivity of folks from uh, the BLM. Uh, who he felt unnecessarily inflamed uh, or uh, stoked the embers of distrust toward the BLM and the federal government uh, uh, in general. So here he is uh, spanning uh, two cultures, his his, uh, role as a scientist, his role as a member of the Blanding community, and I guess it's three cultures, and a member of the LDS church. And um, I think that... He came across as deeply pessimistic about the possibility of uh, achieving, uh, at least in the short uh, in the short run, any sort of understanding uh, either of the uh, importance of these cultural uh, art of artifacts or of how public lands could be used not only to serve people in the local community but more broadly people around the uh, around the nation. Rebecca, do you think that captures? I do. I would. I would say, in a nutshell, when we heard about Winston Hurst, we knew he was one of the preeminent uh, archaeologists in the Southwest, and you know, on the surface, one would think uh, esteemed archaeologist with decades of helping to study and uh, preserve uh, native artifacts. Why would he not support the idea of a national monument? Seems like he might be one of uh, the most vocal supporters. And yet, as we spoke to him and spoke to others who knew them, it, it became very clear that he was deeply ambivalent mm-hmm. about it. And in fact, um, but a lot of it, it really drills down to his concern that it needs to be lo- locally controlled or sensitive to local peoples with local buy-in right right? this kind of skepticism of of federal involvement right uh well uh, you said you wanted to make a note on heidi red sure i she's another one where on the surface just reading a brief bio of her it seems like she too, would be a natural supporter of the monument and very much aligned with the conservationist perspective on Bears Ears. She lives on uh, a ranch in exquisitely beautiful territory near Indian Creek, which is one of the uh, most famous rock climbing destinations uh, in the nation, if not the world. And Yeah, for any, any listeners, if you've driven to the Needles District of Canyonlands, there's a ranch on the left. Le- south side of the road called Dugout Ranch. And that's where Heidi Red is. And and she, for a number of years, has worked in collaboration with the Nature Conservancy on research on and around her ranch on, um, on the impacts of climate change on 
um, local flora and fauna. And so again, working with the Nature Conservancy, um, it seems it seems only natural that she would be very aligned with the conservationists who supported the monument from the get-go. Um, and yet her perspective is very much informed by her, first of all, her long and deep history in the region that stretches back about 50 years. Um, she also married into one of the most prominent Mormon families in the region, so she has that perspective as well. But she also has the perspective of someone who, over the decades, has watched traffic to the Needles region of Canyons National Park just explode um, and recreationists coming to Indian Creek and climbing uh, like crazy and creating a lot of noise and traffic. And to her, it's it just reeks of industrial tourism. And what's the impact of that on the landscape? And she also has a perspective on the, uh, the benefit, the economic benefit of extractive industries to the county in past decades. You know, she was one of many folks who told us, you know, um, mining royalties helped, you know, build the hospital. And, you know, at the time, San Juan County teachers were the highest paid in the state. And it's worth noting that San Juan County uh, has been the poorest county in the state of Utah for a long time. Um, and so she gets the the respect for and almost nostalgia for a time when um, extractive industries really helped the county be economically prosperous. And so mm -hmm. she she says, you know, we should take a second both to respect the fact that extractive industries really helped this county be prosperous for a time and also to note that tourism can be very hard on the land as well. So what is sort of a middle ground we can find in terms of finding a way to develop robust uh, a robust economy in the county while also encouraging um, a type of tourism that could be less um, disruptive. And so she has that kind of interesting, nuanced perspective that one might not expect by just reading a, mm -hmm. a quick bio of her. Yeah. Well, I think throughout most of these uh, individuals come up as much more nuanced than, than people might expect. You end the book with a coda because after you've done these interviews, uh, a lot happened with the monument being uh, established and then uh, reduced and so forth. But kind of going along with what you're saying, you note that if, as you talk to all these people, you say, quote, they just want to be seen and heard. And it, it makes me think that perhaps having them being seen and heard out in the landscape is most profound because maybe the land wants to be seen and heard as well through them. And that's that takes time. That takes dedication on you know on your part of spending time with them and and getting them getting them out there uh, to reveal that you know they they all are more complex and uh, than we would otherwise uh, perhaps think. We are uh, running out of time. I've never done a survey to see how long people are willing to listen to a podcast, <laughs> um, but I suspect we might be uh, nearing that point. Yeah. <laughs> um, I always like to give people a chance to offer any closing thoughts on kind of other things that they're they're working on or moving forward on. And before we recording, Stephen had mentioned uh, a somewhat similar project or somewhat related, which I think would serve as a really good way to, to wrap this up. Um, Stephen, do you want to tell us about what you're working on in the San Rafael Swell region of Utah? Yes, I would. It's an area that uh, I have visited uh, on and off for for 40 years and intended once again to provide a visual introduction uh, to the area as well as a more academic introduction to the paleontological geological and cultural history of the of the area and as was the case for bears ears this is an area that people had sought to protect for uh, the better part of uh, a generation. 
In fact, the people from Emory County, uh, in which the San Rafael Swell sits, have uh, made various efforts to provide certainty regarding the use of public lands uh, by looking at various ways of protecting some parts and uh, making use uh, for economic reasons uh, of others. So much as the case in, in Bears Ears, I was thinking of relating that history, capturing points of view as to uh, from those who oppose it, uh, protection to those who embrace it. By some miracle, the Emory County Public Lands uh, Management Act was passed in March of 2019, March of this year, and it provided an opportunity to ask, how did that compromise come to be? What were the elements that made the San Rafael Swell uh, come under uh, protection? Uh, why might Bears Ears have failed? And by looking at a couple of other uh, recently protected uh, large tracts of federal land, Boulder White Clouds in south central Idaho and Washington County in southwestern Utah, what lessons could be drawn as to the elements that uh, allow people to come uh, to compromise? Hmm. And so uh, I put together what in academic terms might be a set of, of case studies, but again, based on interviews with people on all sides of the of the issue from the conservation community and the conservation community that's that's too broad a, a rubric there is a tremendous spectrum of of conservation groups some relatively uh, extreme and ideological and others uh, far more amenable to, to to compromise as well as people on the uh, on, on the other side the OHV community other recreation interests, mining interests, and so on. I've talked to a very broad uh, range of people, both in Emory County and in D.C. And, uh, in fact, I just got back from D.C. the end of last week. And, uh, anyway, I'm hoping to put together a book that, again, provides uh, a visual introduction to the swell, an introduction to its history, uh, and also a set of case studies uh, and reflections on uh, what leads to compromise regarding the use of, of public lands. And finally, uh, how in putting together those compromises, uh, the effects of public land protection on rural economies can be uh, not only looked at as part of the, uh, of the compromises, but uh, elevated. I think it's really important. Uh, and at least one of the lessons that I've learned is that with without those rural voices being heard uh, and understood and without their economic needs taken into a, a account, discussions regarding the use of public lands will remain fraught. And it's surprising to me that there's so little conversation about the needs of rural communities and without those voices i don't think you can can come to rational conclusions about how best to protect and make use of those lands anyway i'm hoping to have this book manuscript finished sometime during the first quarter of next year and uh what unfortunately what i lack uh is rebecca's ability to uh, to vivify uh, what, I've, what I've managed to, to cobble together. Well, I, th I think it sounds great, and my friends will know my personal obsession with the swell, so oh, I, we I look forward to that. We, we must talk. Um, yes, yeah, we'll, we'll have more conversations. Uh, Rebecca, are you doing anything kind of related to these issues I'm, moving forward? Um, shortly, the uh, answer is no, although I will say we have a blog at our website, bearsearscountry.com, in which we continue to follow the developments in the Bears Ears story. There's uh, pending litigation about yeah. Trump's decision to reduce the National Monument, um, the a fascinating coalition of uh, conservationists, recreationists, uh, outdoor uh 
clothing companies like Patagonia are involved as well as uh, members of the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition. So we continue to follow those developments. Um, and so that's my current connection to the Bears Ears issue. Um, like I said, I do have to jump off. This has been a really wonderful conversation, Brendan, and thank you so much for having us. Well, thank you guys for your work. It's been a, it's been a real pleasure. You bet. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. Writing Westward is a production of the Charles Rudd Center for Western Studies at Brigham Young University. Our theme music was provided by local Utah composer Micah Dahl Anderson. You can find him at Micah, D-A-H-L, Anderson with an O, dot com. I'll include a link in the episode description. Besides subscribing to the podcast, you can receive regular updates about upcoming episodes by following on Facebook or Twitter. My name is Brennan Rensink, and I serve here as the podcast host, producer, sound engineer, uh, and pretty much everything else. So if you have any praise or critiques, you should probably just send them my way. I'm associate director of the Red Center and an associate professor of history here at Brigham Young University. Feel free to contact me if you have any questions about the podcast, the Red Center, our live-streamed lectures and events, funding opportunities, or anything else. If you have books you think I should consider for an episode, please send them my way. One last plug, I'm also the project manager and general editor of a great digital public history project hosted here at the Red Center called Intermountain Histories. You can check it out by visiting www.intermountainhistories.org or download the free mobile app by searching Intermountain Histories on your Apple or Android devices. There you can read carefully curated histories of the region, complete with archival photos, bibliographies, and more. In any case, thanks again for listening to the episode. We'll see you next month.